This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry and Jonah is joining us as well. Alex, do we have any more responses to this week's question from hell, which is, what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? Because so far, our front runner is David T., who said that the Halloween costume that he is not getting in trouble over this year is going as Justin Trudeau in whiteface. So somebody's got to beat that. So do you have any more responses? Uh, Braden S. says, anime Karl Marx. <laughs> Fergus, F. Sa- or Fergus Z. says, decapitated Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Borky B. says, Pelosi face. And Ronaldo M. says, the high-end bespoke $5,000 suit I do not and will likely never own due to my proud disdain for luxury items. (laughs) Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person who we think has the best response this week gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring 25 interviews we've done during the 2000s. That's kind of like an introduction to This Is Hell. If you want to turn a friend on to This Is Hell, getting the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive is a great way to get others into the show, and you can find it right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all of our stuff that we have for you, our listening audience. This week, we started by talking to writer and musician Luke O'Neill, author of Welcome to Hell World, Dispatches from the American Dystopia. Luke's book is a collection of essays that he has posted at luke.substack.com. You can see his most recent writing there now, and if you like it, you can subscribe to support Luke's work. Like us, Luke is completely audience-supported. After we discussed racism, fascism, war, and our carceral state with Luke, we spoke with social scientist, law, criminology, and criminal justice scholar Christine Scott Hayward, co-author of Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pretrial Detention Fuels Inequalities in the Criminal Justice System. Christine explained how a staple of the U.S. justice system is classist, racist, and how the majority of people currently in jail have not been found guilty of the crime they are charged with, and 90% of those people are being detained because they cannot afford bail. That's right. In the U.S. justice system, bail presumes guilt before innocence. Manufacturing dissent just like that since 1996. This is hell. Coming up, protests are erupting all over the world. Not that you would know it if you watch, read, or listen to the establishment media. Uprisings are happening in the UK, Catalonia, Lebanon, Haiti, Ecuador. And we'll find out what's happening with the rebellion in Chile when we speak in a few with Bree Busk. Bree contributes to movements in both the U.S. and Chile through art, writing, and providing the invisible reproductive labor their organizations need to survive and flourish. Bree returns to This Is Hell to tell us about her latest Roar Magazine article, Chileans Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. Bree is a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. Find out more about Black Rose at blackrosefed.org. 
and follow Black Rose on Twitter at BRRN underscore Fed. We'll tell you what's happening on our bonus show tomorrow for, or actually it's going to be on Friday now, Friday morning at 10 a.m. for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll wrap up this week's show as we do most shows, and that's with Jeff Dorchin delivering a moment of truth. This week, Jeff examines some momentous, momentous events through the lens of the great emancipator, Mark Zuckerberg. After Jeff, we'll read the rest of your responses to this week's question from hell. What Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? What Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And again, the best response gets our This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. A couple days ago, a friend asked me a question I never considered, and maybe by the end of this monologue, you'll hopefully understand why I never thought about the question before recently being asked. For my entire life, I kind of took the answer to the question for granted to the point that I never deemed the question worthy of further reflective or contemplative deliberation. It's something I never thought about because it's something that I've always thought, if that makes any sense kind of like when you know something no matter how true it actually is an automatic predisposition that I've embraced for so long it's become an assumption but it's the kind of assumption that is always scary because of the speed at which assumptions can reveal me to be an ass. Okay, I'll admit I considered the question one other time in the past but I didn't remember that conversation until this week when a friend posed the question and that question is So exactly how long have you been an anti-capitalist? My anti-capitalism, my worldview on everything, is constantly evolving, often due to the guests we have here on the show, and I hope your views are changing, as mine are. That's the point of the whole show, to think, to learn, and to constantly grow our understanding of whatever it is we are discussing. We're not here to promote an agenda other than to learn and hopefully improve our conception of how the world works and how it should and how it could work. So while I am an anti-capitalist today in a way that is different from the past, and in the future that anti-capitalism will hopefully evolve into something better, when my friend asked me how long I'd been an anti-capitalist, I realized that I've always been an anti-capitalist, even if we didn't use that word yet. Years ago, a different friend of mine, this one now dead from what was likely a fentanyl overdose, but his politically powerful family covered it up, which likely contributed to my anti-capitalism. Years ago, after I went off on my now-dead friend about how third-way politicians like Al Gore sucked, he asked me, well, what are you, a Democrat or a Republican? I replied bluntly, I'm a communist. He snapped, like the Soviet Union? And I said, no, small-c communism. The Soviet Union is no more communist than the U.S. is democratic. It was all in hopes to shut him up because I've always hated talking partisan politics within the parameters of Republican or Democrat. And it worked. He dismissed what I said, and we moved on to discussing something far less upsetting to him. So it was probably about either women or drugs. But that was a very long time ago. Now this week, when my still-living friend asked how long I'd been an anti-capitalist, I told him the story of how our late mutual friend asked me once to explain my politics. That story was to explain how my anti-capitalism was nothing new, not a fad. That said, my understanding of capitalism is far more in-depth and nuanced than it was before I started doing this show, which means it's certainly different today, and it will always be morphing and improving, at least that's what I hope. But I kept thinking about the question long after my friend headed home. 
kept going backwards in my mind's time machine, cycling through my memories, trying to figure out when and where and how my anti-capitalism started. I remembered how in junior high, which is what we called middle school in Michigan, I wrote a short story for an English class. The point of the poorly written and executed story, I think I got a C- minus on it, if that, was an attempt to overcome what I saw as an exaggerated demonization of Russians in the Soviet Union. The story was about a fictional Russian school student cleverly named Ivan Ivanov, who was also cleverly right around my age. Ivan was the victim of the same propaganda I was experiencing, but in reverse, he was being misled into thinking the U.S. was as evil as our propaganda made the Soviet Union out to be. The idea was a kind of moral equivalency that I was trying to capture in this work, the the kind that you would expect from a 13-year-old who was the product of a horrible horrible school system. The moral to the story, if there was one in its convoluted narrative, was that we were being manipulated by a bastardized version of democracy and a demonized version of communism. Meanwhile, those in the Soviet Union were having that experience in reverse, and at their core, they were both being ruined by the root of all evil, by money, by capitalism. But my time machine kept going in reverse. And that's when I started thinking about the root of all evil. And that's when I realized when my anti-capitalism began. And you can blame my anti-capitalism on Jesus H. Christ. I was raised Catholic, and it had a huge impact on me as a kid. I thought it was all literally true, even the parts that contradict the other parts. I was lucky enough to have a priest who came in from South Africa, had been there for about 10 or 11 years, but he had embraced liberation theology. And seeing Christianity put into a practical form on the ground, that really, really excited me. The Bible story, again, raised Roman Catholic, you don't read the Bible story as much as you read Bible stories written by the Catholic Church. The story that had the greatest effect on me was the story of the money changers in the temple. I always loved the action hero sequences in Bible movies when the actor playing Christ would enter the temple and start violently upending tables. To me, Christ kicking tables and kicking ass, those things were awesome. Then there was the story of Judas betraying Christ and how Judas was given 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal. In the movies, even the Roman centurion who pays Judas is disgusted by Judas's betrayal. Judas takes his own life when he realizes what he has done. And he did it all in the name of capitalism. Those stories instilled in me an anti-capitalism, a thorough belief that money is the root of all evil, which I'm pretty sure is also somewhere in the Bible, but again, Catholic, so not into reading the Bible. The Pope does that for us. So how long have I been anti-capitalist? As long as I can remember. That said, the anti-capitalism I am afflicted by today, afflicted with today, is a far more informed, far more learned, has a far greater understanding of what anti-capitalism is than any understanding I've had in the past. And now you know. Remember, if you have a problem with my anti-capitalism, blame Jesus Christ. I dare you. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. Coming up, protests in Chile, a moment of truth on Mark Zuckerberg, and the winner of this week's question from hell. Protests are happening all over the world, not that the U.S. media has noticed. Here, returning to This is Hell to tell us about one of the many uprisings happening right now, American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk is author of the Roar magazine article, Chileans Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. Welcome back to This is Hell, Bree. 
Thank you. I'm so happy to be back here again. It's really great to have you on the show. Uh, you can hear Bree on our show back in March. We had this fantastic conversation with Bree about a couple of articles, uh, a couple other articles she wrote for Roar Magazine. One's called uh, Chile's Feminist Inspires a New Era of Social Struggle, and Chile's Feminist Movement is Here to Stay. Why don't we just start right there? How is that feminist movement, that March 18th movement that we were discussing back in March, how is that movement having any affect any impact on the current protests happening in Chile? Well, I would say there are definitely a lot of forces in play right now, and the feminist movement is one of them. One of the main projects of the Coordinadora Ocho de Marzo, the main uh, feminist coalition in Chile, is to transversalize politics, which means in this case, trying to use feminism as a type of glue or uh, maybe even a rope to tie together different movements. And I do think in this particular moment, you can see like the fruit of some of that labor in that there are a lot of different social movements and alliances working together. It's not a movement where everyone is just getting to know each other for the first time. There are already alliances, relationships, people are able to join together and they're not starting from scratch. So you could see that especially right now, now that we've moved from maybe the intense heat of insurrection to kind of a building phase where people are trying to make a plan for what comes next. You can see that the feminist movement is one of the forces introducing demands, helping connect people together in projects and uh, yeah. And you write about how, uh, once again, Chilean students have opened the floodgates for a population exhausted and indebted by decades of neoliberal policies. Uh, but you point out that the, pro- the students have been protesting for quite some time. This is nothing new with the students. Is the feminism movement, is the feminist movement having an impact on the students who've been protesting for before the feminist movement, that, that the particular feminist movement that's happening now started? Mm, That's a good question. I would say that the students are also influencing the feminist movement. Um, Last year in 2018, it seems like it was a million years ago now, um, it was the university students more than the high school students who were uh, maybe protagonists in the feminist movement, although the high school students were absolutely active at that time as well. Um, But in this case, it was really the high school students who were Uh, the ones kind of taking leadership in this moment through their campaign uh, fair evasions. Um, Yeah, I would say that there continues to be a relationship between the high school student, student organizations, and the feminist movement. You could see that um, last Monday, which, uh, again, only a few short days ago, that was the first day that was called as a general strike here. Um, You saw the spokespeople of the feminist movement of the student movement, of health organizations, of organizations against the pension system, all together in one big uh, press conference, coordinated calling for the general strike on Monday. So, but this all started with fare evasion. Why fare evasion? What does protesting transportation fares reveal to us about these protests, about this uprising? Uh, as I discussed in my article, the uh, fair evasion was really like uh, more of a a token issue. It wasn't a really big raise. In fact, it was only 30 pesos, which is 
you know, I could find that in my couch cushions, no problem. And that fare increase wasn't even going to affect the students who all have a, their own separate card that they use with a reduced fare. So for them, it was really about a broader protest that using that as a way to talk about the overall cost of living, especially in the capital city where everything is expensive from food to rent to transit to all the basic things that you need to live. And I think the students were already angry. They had a hard year, the high school students. And it was just a moment for them to do what they do best, which is to be young and feisty and to break rules and to organize in mass. That's uh, the inheritance of the student movement going back many decades is that they feel like they could be the first ones to take risks and step forward, even for issues that don't affect them directly, because they have a systemic analysis that shows how things like privatized education are very, very connected to things like the cost of living and other privatized institutions in Chile. So why would students, I actually had two questions here and you're kind of going between two. Why would students raised with the legacy of Pinochet and the constant of neoliberalism, why would those who have been raised within such hyper individualism end up supporting causes that do not directly affect themselves? Wouldn't you think that the culture of neoliberalism would inculcate within these people an individualistic idea, not a collective idea? Well, I would say that absolutely exists too. (laughs) There are definitely two strains in the the current uprising. You have people who um, maybe have an individualistic mindset, who wanted to live the Chilean dream. You know, they thought that they would be able to you know, maybe pay a lot for their education and go into debt, but that they would get a good job, a good professional job, and they would do better than their parents did. But that is even less true in Chile than it is in the U.S. So some people are rebelling from the perspective of they were, you know, they didn't receive what they were promised. They were promised a dream of where they would be able to participate in the economic success of the country, but only to discover that that success has really been limited to a very small class of people. So on the other hand, we have the politicized students who are coming from a leftist tradition, and they um, are, they never believed in the system. They, we call them the generation without fear, the first wave of students uh, who were born after the dictatorship ended, they were born in democracy. So they, while they are very aware of how that affected the country, their families, often very directly, they didn't actually have to grow up with the curfew, with the state of emergency, with the military in the streets. And it gave them a certain sort of confidence to carry on the tradition of rebellion that maybe the generation before them was a little scared to do or a little too traumatized to continue in the same way. So you say that they were born into more democracy relative to the dictatorship of Pinochet, but how much democracy can you really have? Can you really be experiencing under the kind of neoliberalism that Chile has right now? Yeah, the theme of democracy is a really important one right now because people have talked about it as 
the return to democracy as a process, not just the moment that Pinochet got voted out. He was not thrown out. He was not put in jail. You know, he was removed by popular referendum. And there wasn't such a strong break, you know, after that moment in 1989 and 1990. So people talk a lot about 30 years, the 30 years since the end of the dictatorship. This was supposed to be a the, like the period of democracy or of democratization. But um, with so many structures in the government, the constitution, the system, and the economic policies uh, introduced by the Chicago Boys, the neoliberal free market economic policies that are still alive and well today, you know, it's uh, sometimes people would say that they feel a little bit more continuity with the dictatorship than, you know, you would expect. You write that President Sebastian Piñera has responded with force, resorting to levels of repression reminiscent of the brutal Pinochet dictatorship that ruled the country from 1973 to 1990. Is that popular? How popular is repression in Chile? Seeing as how, as you were saying, they didn't have a clean break from the dictatorship from Pinochet. Uh, So how much is that uh, repression still popular in Chile? Uh, Well, it was the wrong choice. I think uh, Piñera probably was receiving a lot of criticism, even from his best friends in government, for calling for a state of emergency, because it immediately made people who maybe were possibly not so interested in the fair evasion campaign um, or who were apolitical in general, maybe they felt obligated to respond once they saw uh, literal tanks in the street and a curfew was called. Uh, People are alive today who had to suffer under the dictatorship. And it's like not an exaggeration to say that there is collective deep trauma around that. And people who could have ignored protests, because there have been protests in Chile forever, right? Even during the dictatorship, even after the dictatorship, there have always been social movements, big rowdy protests. But to see the army um, put back in the streets and being told to stay at home, that was something that people absolutely couldn't stand. So I think uh, Piñera's choice to do that really threw gasoline on the fire. People were not intimidated at all by the curfew. You know, people uh, enjoyed breaking the curfew People set up barricades. People challenged the army. It was um, it had the opposite effect. It did not calm things down at all. It really just made people much much angrier. How much do you think neoliberalism is it needs to be enforced? The only way that it can stay sustainable is through brute force. Yeah, well, um, that's my opinion. <laughs> I think there's a lot of different takes on that. But I think that if you look at the Chilean example, um, I think in maybe from the international perspective, especially from the U.S. perspective, there's this desire to separate out um, the brutal implementation of free market policies in Chile from the dictatorship itself. They said, okay, the dictatorship, that was the bad part. We're against human rights violations. We're against that type of authoritarianism. But really the the uh, neoliberal policies, those were separate. Those were coincidental and innocent. But I think that we could really see through the, you know, 
history of this country that really they needed the authoritarian backing to be introduced and enforced. And that even to today, when we're supposedly living in democracy, you know, rather than give people the quality of life improvements that they easily could have done, the government, the government has chosen to um, crack down and that uh, it's, friendly face that it had to the world is absolutely gone. You know, the mask has been removed and people can see what is at the heart of things here now, even on the international level. Bree, I'm really glad that you brought up Milton Friedman because here in Chicago, local media reveres any local who becomes famous. So the media here loves to be proud of their very own without considering what their very own like Friedman, who we are always reminded won a Nobel Prize for economics and definitely not for peace because the system has been the scourge of the globe leading to vast inequality caused by a system meant to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. So it's really disgusting. But here on This Is Hell, we encourage Friedman bashing because he was a complete prick. So Bree, feel free to bash him all you want. You write to this day, there is widespread international condemnation of these Pinochet-Guzman-era human rights violations. However, the same cannot be said for the dramatic remaking of the country's economic policies and institutions at the hands of the Chicago boys from the University of Chicago. When faced with a recession, Pinochet handed over the reins to his group of CIA-backed Chilean economists who were encouraged to apply the right libertarian ideology of Milton Friedman with complete impunity. What does it reveal to you about Friedman's right libertarian ideology when it's used by the CIA to help the economy of an authoritarian regime that commits crimes against humanity? Okay, so I'm going to take it one step further beyond uh, Friedman bashing. I'm oh, going to go free. straight to some. I'm going to go to some NPR bashing. Oh, sweet, because <laughs> uh, because um, I think it was a few months ago on the Planet Money program. Something, uh, you know, I'm from good Seattle liberal origins. I love NPR, but oh, they made me so angry because they did a program on the Chicago Boys, a two part program talking about um, how. Really, the premise of the program was that maybe, of course, the dictatorship was bad, but look how well Chile is doing. Um, the first scene um, that they interviewed from was Parque Arauco, like in one of the richest areas of Santiago, like a place that most Chileans would never, ever be able to step foot in. And they went on to interview some absolute fascists on their program. So clearly, even in like, what would be considered like the liberal media, there's a certain softness with how things are treated. And uh, that makes me so angry. Yeah, I can't I even talk about it. I'm so angry. I know. But you could see that like Friedman and those who supported him have blood on their hands. Like um, it was, they were working with some of the worst people in the country. People are responsible for, murder, disappearances, torture, sexual torture, like damaging the Chilean people in a way that was so deep that it's still felt today. And they had an ideology in a, like almost a religious level. And they thought that to get the result that they wanted, which is the implementation of their, uh, you know, free market policies, that it didn't matter other stuff was just like, a, oh, you know, like a casualty of war, you know, collateral damage. But what a cruel way of 
viewing what happened in this country. You write cruel and limited. Right, right. Uh, you write uh, Friedman would go on to describe Chile's successful transition to free market economics and eventual return to democracy, as you were saying, the miracle of Chile, proof in his mind of the liberating effects of his policies. The bloodshed under the dictatorship was a small price to pay for such an ideal outcome. This way of thinking is the true legacy of the dictatorship. Free markets bought with human suffering. But just in case there's people out there who disconnect the two, what does the blood have to do with the miracle? What does Pinochet's violent brutality have to do with Friedman's economy's success? Because here in the United States, we really like to take the economy and separate it from everything as if it lives in a vacuum. So what did the two have to do with each other? Well, you could uh, take it um, in the context of the dictatorship and the context now. Um, under the dictatorship, um, one of the main architects of the both the economic policies and the uh, constitution was Jaime Guzman. He didn't hold an official post within the government, but he was Pinochet's very influential advisor. And he was one of the people who encouraged um, the entry of the Chicago boys into the process as consultants. And Today, like we are still living with the constitution that he drafted, and we are still living with those policies. So, aside from the human rights violations and crimes of the dictatorship, now we have been living with those policies for decades, and you could see what the results are. The results are vast wealth inequality, um, a two tier healthcare system where there is a public system and a private system, and the public system is completely deprived of resources. People die trying to get care. Private system is great if you can afford it. Um, we have a pension system. Again, the legacy of the Chicago boys that means that people as they retire are in poverty. They don't have enough to live. And something that I haven't seen reported so often on the news right now is that we have a really high rate of like depression and suicide, especially in the capital city of Santiago. Like the metro system that has been the source of so many protests is also routinely um, interrupted in its service by people throwing themselves onto the tracks. And when the stories of these people come out, some of those stories are about elderly couples who didn't want to be a burden. So they decided to end their own lives and that's something that we've heard of in the U.S. too. So for me, this is this is the legacy of it, is that like some crimes are out on the surface. You know, if people are being uh, kidnapped from their homes, tortured, and eventually murdered, and then their bodies put in some unknown grave, that's one type of violence. But it's also violence to deprive the population bit by bit of all of the things that you need to live and thrive and survive and grow as humans. And I think that's the violence. Well, now we have both types again, right? And we have to fight against both. Bree, that response was literally spine-tingling for me. We are speaking with American anarchists living and working in Santiago, Bree Busk, author of the Roar magazine article, Chilean Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. Bree currently contributes to movements in both the U.S. and Chile through art, writing, and providing the invisible reproductive labor that organizations need to survive and flourish. She's a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. You can find out more about Black Rose at Black Rose Fed. 
Pinochet.com. You write during their 17 years in power, so that's from 74 to 1990. Pinochet and advisor Jaime Guzman attempted to eradicate every trace of communism from public life. This took several forms, the most memorable being Pinochet's campaign of terror against all leftist detractors consisting of kidnappings, torture, assassinations, and mass detention all supported, if not funded, and facilitated by the United States. What impact has that had on the way Chileans view the U.S.? And considering the recent protests, the view they have of U.S.-style neoliberalism, which the, is the kind the U.S. is exporting and imposing on South American nations, even up to this day? Well, um, again, I think we have that sort of two levels of response when we're talking about orientations towards the U.S. On one hand, you do have people who uh, criticize it quite rightly for its history of imperialism and um, regime change, uh, interventions in foreign governments, and uh, also the kind of predatory economic policies towards Latin America from time immemorial, of course. And then of, you also have another layer of people who want nothing more than to leave this country to go and live in the U.S. You know, like... Um, when I first came here a little bit more than four years ago, I didn't really have the culture shock that you would expect going from one hemisphere to another. There were so many things here that seemed so familiar, the privatized education. I could complain about my student debt with other people. Like There were so many things that just seemed just like the U.S. And I re at the time then I was like, why is that? But then I realized that you know, through globalization and through the intervention of, you know, installing the dictatorship here and the economic policies, like, you know, the U.S. is very influential. People go and see Hollywood movies here more often than they see Chilean films. English is the main language taught in schools uh, with different degrees of success. And, um, but, uh, oh, what else? What you was know, the second part? Sorry. Uh, that's uh, I, What I was going to move on to was uh, actually the, the economy is stable. You point that out. And the poverty rate is dropping. So why isn't that not enough for the protesters? Well, it's the what I said before about the unfulfilled promises is that as people see improvements, they can see that gap widening, right? Like if you are living in one Chile, your life really isn't so bad. You live in a safe, wealthy neighborhood. You might never even need to go downtown. Um, your kids go to private school. Uh, that school will guarantee them access to the best universities. Then maybe they'll do a year abroad in Europe. Um, they'll come back, get plugged right into a job in a one of the country's big companies or firms. And for them, it feels like it's working out really well. But for a lot of people, some didn't trust the system from the get-go, but a lot of others thought that maybe things would be able to be a little different, that we would move more towards democracy, that the wealth that the insecurity that the country was gaining would be maybe distributed a little bit more, that there would at least be more trickle-down than there has been. And while I think people do appreciate the level of stability in the country, it just hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough for people, especially when they expected the, you know, the left-wing governments, like, for example, the governments of uh, Michelle Bachelet, to be more responsive than the right-wing governments. You know, they thought that, you know, 
there would be at least some response that maybe some of the sort of neoliberal policies would be reversed in a meaningful way. But that hasn't happened. And I think that's why you've seen what was before, like very typical uh, protest movements kind of reach this level of intensity where you see the city on fire is because what was being done before wasn't enough to move the right or the left in power. And this started all with a fair evasion. Pinera has now uh, said that he will not increase the mass transit fares. So that problem has been aver- averted. And the, the, the protesters are still in the streets. People are still protesting, despite the fact that Pinera gave the protesters what their original demand was. How did it move from a fair evasion to a general strike? Why wasn't getting rid of the fair increase? enough for the protesters? And how did it move from being a fair evasion to a general strike? Well, um, if the fair evasion like reversal happened, I would say that happened on Sunday. And Friday was the night where things were really popping off in the Capitol. And but Saturday was when he um, instituted the state of emergency and brought the army in. So imagine just saying, oh, okay, we'll, we'll, we won't do the 30 peso increase while you literally have tanks in the street. It was almost comical how inappropriate it was because by then people were much, much, much angrier. And um, that was only the first of the many things he's tried to desperately throw at the movement uh, to protect himself. Uh, Yesterday, I think, he sacrificed most of his cabinet, but of course he left quite a few problematic uh, people in place. So again, people made the joke that it was just like, uh, what do they say, like uh, like changing your socks without washing your feet, that <laughs> he's, uh, he's willing to do everything that isn't a real, really big sacrifice. You've seen a lot of other things. He proposed like a raft of reforms uh, regarding the minimum wage, the health system, everything, which just shows how he could have given these minor reforms at any point because he's willing to do it now. But people are not in the mood to be placated by these minor adjustments when the protests are around, around systemic issues. People want deep, meaningful change. They want a new constitution. Uh, they want Piñera out. And if he thinks that sacrificing his uh, cabinet will mean that uh, he, he'll get a pass to say, you know, he couldn't be more wrong. You point out how during the protest, the subway system had collapsed under the pressure of the protest. Commuters were forced to squeeze into overburdened buses or simply start walking. Meanwhile, a social media call for Carcero Lazos drew neighbors from their homes to bang pots and pans in demonstration of their rejection of the fare increases and perhaps more importantly the government's violent mismanagement of the protests. How does the pro, how do the uh, does their presence the presence of the Carcero Lazos how does their presence affect the way the public either views the protests or the protesters view the protests because these uh, Carcero Lazos they've been around in, 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 what little research I did on it they, they seem to date back to at least uh, 2000. 
2001's protest in Argentina. This seems to be a South American-wide type of strategy. So how does the presence of the people banging pots and pans, what effect does that have on the protests, and what effect, what effect does that have on the popular view of the protests? Well, it's uh, the cacerolazos are only one of many tactics um, being used right now, a way of demonstrating against what's going on. I would say they go back even uh, further, even to the period of the dictatorship, because the idea is like, there's no food in your pot, so you're going to go out and uh, make some noise about it. Um, It's um, a tactic that has been used in other political moments, even in the past couple of years. You know, like they say, come out, peacefully protest, bang your pots and pans in a public area to, um, you know, make a big, loud, noisy uh, call to action around a particular issue. Um, But what I think was really fascinating about how that worked in this particular moment is that um, in addition to having sort of specific uh, pre-planned casarolazos in St. Lake, for example, someone would put out a flyer saying, let's all meet at this day and time in this location, um, there was also a lot of just kind of spontaneous ones happening. And when you hear some banging in your neighborhood, some pots and pans clanking together, you put your head out your window. And then maybe you walk out into the street to join people. And so there was also this really beautiful, spontaneous aspect of it that you saw emerge last Friday of neighbors leaving their houses following the noise to join together. Maybe people who weren't planning on participating originally were encouraged to do so by their neighbors. And then these became, in many cases, regular meetings where maybe you would meet to talk before that. And it's been a way of, um, I don't know, facilitating relationship building between neighbors became kind of public areas of gathering, like in my neighborhood, we, I've met my neighbors, like, for the first time, people from all over the area who are all concerned about what's going on. And what started as us just getting together to make some noise uh, uh, right before curfew every night has now become um, a regular meeting, uh, an assembly where we're talking about what we want in our neighborhood and for the country. And that's been a really beautiful development of direct democracy that's happening all over the city, and I imagine at this point all over the country. I'm telling you, spine tingling. You're making my spine tingle every time you respond. You write, rather than acknowledging the deep dissatisfaction that gave rise to the uprising, Pinera chose to focus on the looting and vandalism, even going so far as implying that greater forces might be at work behind the scenes. Bree, what greater forces are at work behind the scenes, according to Pinera? It's got to be Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, you know, a, a tendency here to um, think that uh, the communists are out undermining the government. Um, I don't really think uh, Nicolas Maduro has the resources or the interest to launch some sort of big anti-government uh, insurgency in Chile that's pretty comical, but um, on one level, you can just laugh at it because it's like a sign of, you know, the weakness and desperation of the government right now that they're trying to put out these conspiracy theories. But it could have some real consequences because Chile, like many other um, uh, Latin American countries, has taken in a lot of people from Venezuela, people who 
um, came here because of the unrest and lack of resources in Venezuela. So we have a huge migrant population. And now it's like, I think this is a tactic that many people are familiar with, especially in the U.S., is that in times of unrest, instead of looking at the structures of the government and economy, they point to a scapegoat. And the idea of trying to play on people's nascent or even uh, over xenophobia to kind of distract people from the legitimate demands in the streets. That's that tactic has been around for a long time. And also I think that the government and Pinera and others uh, are trying to create a narrative of the good protester, bad protester, the one who, burns barricades and the one who peacefully marches. But the truth is, is that sometimes those people are the same people, that there's a, you know, a widespread variety of tactics here and that, you know, you can't start uh, dividing people like that because people are not divided. People are united around these demands. And whereas maybe not everyone agrees with you know, the tactics of setting fires or building barricades, people are certainly more sympathetic to the people who are doing that than the government. You write, in a country with a thousand political chants, protesters have returned to one penned during Salvador Allende's popular unity government and popularized after the fall in 1973. Again and again, the streets echo with a phrase that binds the struggles of the past to those of the present. And that is, the people united will never be defeated. But sadly, Allende was defeated with the help of Henry Kissinger, the CIA, and assassins. Is there any fear that the U.S. will step in, somehow influence and end the protests? Is there fear of U.S. interference, like happened, what happened with Allende and the propping up of a horrible authoritarian in Pinochet instead of the democratically elected leader? Um, I haven't heard anything like that, um, either as a rumor or in analysis. I don't think that that is the biggest fear. I think that the real danger is more that the right now the government is trying to outlast the movement. Um, I heard someone make a really what I thought was clever observation is that Piñera, he's a businessman and for him, he's doing what a businessman would do while the workers are on strike, try to kind of hunker down, win the war of like the narrative of things and uh, tire people out. And, you know, there's a lot of different forces even within the protest movement. You have the leftist parties, you have social movement organizations, you have individuals, you have collectives, you have the labor unions. And these forces are capable of working together in a powerful way to achieve their demands, but they are also capable of falling into um, their own power struggles. For example, like um, on the left... um, on the left wing and left wing parties, part of the government, you know, this could be their moment to try to leverage the energy of the protest to get a better position for themselves. You know, so I think we are, we are our own danger in this moment. And my deepest hope is that the people united through direct democracy will be able to remain um, 
in the rain, you know, in the saddle, holding the reins of this movement, this insurgency as it goes forward. Instead of falling victim to despair and futility, we were speaking with Corey Robin just recently about his book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, and he was talking about the conservative political strategy, the right-wing political strategy of giving everybody the impression of despair and futility, that nothing can be done, that everything is set in stone forever. Do you see a process within Pinera's policymaking where he seems to be trying to foment despair and futility amongst the Chilean people to end the protests? Well, I think the despair and futility was there before. That's the result of these like policies that have been affecting our lives, feeling poor, broke, um, out of a job, not being able to live off of your job. That was despair. And in fact, uh, it reminds me of another slogan I've seen spray painted on a lot of streets is that it wasn't depression, it was capitalism. And that sums up the sentiment that so many people thought that it was about their own individual suffering, their own mental illness, their own inability to cope, that it was their fault that they weren't able to make it under this current system. But a lot of people right now are having hope again because they're realizing that they were all in this together, that the system that had been, you know, kind of squeezing the joy out of life and making every day harder, it was that. And that, you know, one thing that all of this civil unrest has caused is it's given people a little bit of breathing space. Like, you have time to meet with your neighbors. You know, the city is paralyzed. You're missing your paycheck. That's my case. You know, it should be a desperate moment. But instead, that moment is made better by remembering what life is like when you are not spending all your day locked in an office. You're with your friends, with your family. You're in the streets. You're experiencing community and togetherness. That is like the medicine for the negative effects of neoliberalism and capitalism on the Chilean people. And I think now that people have felt this again, they're not going to be so quick to let go of it. I am telling you, you are giving me so many goosebumps. We have to end this conversation. I've got one last question for you, Brie. We've been speaking with American anarchists living and working in Santiago, Chile. Brie Busk, author of the Roar magazine article, Chileans Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. This is the second time Brie has been on our show this year. She was on back in March to discuss her Roar magazine articles on Chile's feminists. And you can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and just search on the word busk, B-U-S-K, and you'll find that interview there. One last question for you, Brie, and as we always do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. To you, what explains why these protests, not just in Chile, but protests around the world are getting so little news coverage. There's a fantastic article at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR.org right now by Ellen McLeod, who shows how the major media outlets in the U.S. are ignoring the uprisings in Ecuador, Chile, Lebanon, Catalonia, the U.K., and Haiti, but they're giving blanket coverage to Hong Kong. What would you think would cause the that lack of coverage when it comes to Chile? Uh, I think I read that article and I definitely support that analysis. And the idea is, is that this is a movement against capitalism, against the cruelty of capitalism, against a system that deprives people of, I don't know, of everything that they need to live and thrive. And 
I think especially in the U.S. context, let me tell you, things are a lot closer here to what we have there. The only difference is here people are striking back against it. And if I was someone who wanted to preserve the status quo, especially in the U.S., I wouldn't want people to be hearing about the critiques and movements happening in Chile either. And um, uh, particularly, I want to give a shout out to a shout out. That's a hilarious way of putting it. But I want to <laughs> make a statement of solidarity with the people of Haiti. Um, we have a growing Haitian migrant community in uh, Chile. It's been a big site of migration. Uh, Haitian migrants here have a really hard time. Uh, they don't just experience the effects of xenophobia um, that other migrants face, but they also are like a racialized migrant population. And they are really, you know, having a hard time of it here. And that many people are stepping up, you know, even at the risk that participating in protest means as a migrant, they are advancing their demands. And I would say, like, you know, we have more in common with each other than not. And I hope that what is happening here can continue to connect with the similar struggles around the world. And I, I would really like something to happen in the U.S., so uh, get on that. <laughs> I will. That's the, it's on my to-do list right now, Bree. Thank you so much for being back on our show. You have an open invitation to being on here whenever you'd like to talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really, really appreciate our conversation today. Thanks. It was a great experience. All right. Take care. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible idea. This is Hell. Thanks to everyone who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support this week to check out our This Is Hell trucker caps, coffee mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, and the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century featuring 25 inter- interviews from the 2000s. It's kind of an introduction to This Is Hell. Thanks for visiting our store at thisishell.com. When you click on support, goes to Brett and Magnificent Me, and everyone who stopped in. Your orders are being fulfilled as we speak. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, Jeff examines more or some momentous events through the lens of the great emancipator, Mark Zuckerberg. Alex, do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell, which is, what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble for this year? Oh, yeah. What Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble for this year? Mark C. says, Hillary's face. (laughs) Rich G. says, every year I dress up as Godot. I like to make people wait. David S. says, a peach, formerly known as flesh, Crayola crayon. Sounds like something a serial killer would have scrawled on a Wait, wall, go David. Back. was that again? A peach, comma, formerly known as flesh, <laughs> comma, Crayola crayon. Oh, a peach crayon. Yeah. Oh, okay. And who is that? That scared me. Uh, David S. Right. David S. Uh, Lawrence M. says, the specter of communism. Daniel F. says, <laughs> sexy Mueller report. And Aaron D. says, Santa emoluments clause, bringing gifts both foreign and domestic to good little members of the executive branch everywhere. (laughs) Who brought up Santa emoluments clause? That was uh, Aaron D. And uh, I got Jeffy. All right, hold on a second. Uh, so let's see. Leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. The person who we think has the best response this week gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring 25 interviews we've done during the 2000s. That's kind of like an introduction to This Is Hell. If you want to turn a friend on to This Is Hell, getting the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive is a great way to get others into the show. I want to quickly. Announce an unannounced new segment here on This Is Hell. In other words, this will probably never happen again. But 
there's just something I had to get off my chest. I called the segment the segment questions Chuck would like to hear at a press conference. This week's press conference is any with California fire officials who are representing the government in response to fighting California's massive wildfires that really aren't all that wild as they are fueled by human contact like homes in newly developed areas that act like fire bombs and power lines to those homes and throughout the region that act like wicks. That's why the whole thing's burning up, wildfires and we're fueling them. So the question I would like to hear the media ask is, how many and what is the proportion of firefighters fighting the wildfires that are prisoners, that are prison inmates? Follow that up with, how much do they earn for fighting fires? Next, ask how well are they trained. Then let them explain why we need trained firefighters who we pay at a higher rate to fight fires when we can simply have low-paid prisoners. They'll likely say that they need highly qualified firefighters to so follow up with. If they need to be so highly qualified, then why are you using prisoners? So that's a new segment we may or may not ever go back to again. Questions I'd like to hear at press conferences. Our weekly Wednesday evening meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours, happens tonight at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours are a think and drink is a think and drink with an emphasis on drink. Join us any, each and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs. From this here studio, we'll give you This Is Hell's advertising stickers and show-related books just for dropping by. That's This Is Hell office hours tonight at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Coming up, a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, and then we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's, nope, make that Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, as well as what's happening on next week's show. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is Hell. Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. Hot or not? Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I heard a remark the other day. The cop on the beat who knew everyone in the neighborhood, that was a myth. There was no evidence to support the existence of such a person or situation. That golden age of the neighborhood policeman operating in harmony with the community he was policing never existed. And I got to thinking, have any golden ages actually existed? When we look back on our own era, Will we call it the golden age of something and have a competent historian disabuse us of our bunkumish nostalgia? Perhaps he or she will say it was actually a gilded age, since the golden age of everything came ages ago, and any material our age appears to be made of is most likely some cheap understructure covered in sparkly powder coat. For example, TV's golden age came way back in the days of Sid Caesar, Lucille Ball, and the Big Three Networks. Today... We have a lot of great TV, too much if you ask me, but we're just gliding or gilding an already tapped out lily or doing something even trashier like passing around a virus. It's the rhinovirus age of TV. Of what is our age made generally? Corn, dairy, pollution, maybe information. Some say this is the information age. We are stuffed to the gills, even beyond our vestigial gills that is our inner ears with it. If you consider lies information, which I guess they are, kind of, is this the age of lies? But no, 
every age is the age of lies. It must be something uniquely of this era that is not also a false representation of itself. But what? What is that unadulterated signature and true thing that constitutes the atmosphere and fabric of our age? I would argue it is police. We are in the police age. Not the fool's golden age of the neighborhood beat cop. No, our age is made of controlling police, effective police, activity and freedom squelching police, tear gas launching police. We police each other. We white people call authorities if we see black people doing anything normal. We video each other's peccadilloes. We police each other's language and behavior. We police the arts. We police the sciences. We police women's reproductive organs. We really police poor people. We have millions of people in prison, millions of others held under probationary status by one arm of the state or another. We've never had so much surveillance. The police themselves resemble the military as never before and have become synonymous with the globally spreading disease of fascism. Fascism, along with totalitarian communism and totalitarian communism and late capitalism's aftermath, hyper-oligarchy, are the systems under which policing flourishes most vibrantly. Police thrive under militaristic nationalism, especially militaristic nationalistic police. There are exceptions to the police among the populace, but they prove the rule. As always, if you have enough money or are in a high enough government position, in short, if you are under the protective wings of the hyper-oligarchy or are a hyper-oligarch yourself, then, as a majority shareholder of the police, you can fend off any policing. The president, his friends, his henchmen, his lawyers, his procurers of underage rape victims, they all have get-out-of-jail-free cards. All right, maybe not all his procurers of underage rape victims, but the owners of the police are, of course, going to face few, if any, consequences for their many crimes, especially the ones they don't recognize as crimes. Take Mark Zuckerberg, whose flagship company is one of the many organs of gilded information misguiding us toward fascism. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. <clears throat> Zuckerberg is truly concerned about free speech, I hear, because that's how change is created. He will not be fact-checking political ads because that would be policing speech. He's not a police. He thinks back to why he created Facebook in the first place. It's all about freedom and the people. George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq, he tells us, remember how helpless we all felt? We knew George and Dick, Dick Cheney and the others were lying, but there seemed nothing we could do. If only we'd had a fully functioning Facebook the way we do now, we could have done something. We could have rated Saddam Hussein hot or not. Come on, we could have said that guy is simply not hot. Not as hot as G.W. Bush and certainly not as hot as Laura Bush, who made Hussein look like a mildewed, troll-shaped lump of old feta. It was certainly the relative hotness of our world leaders that inspired Mark Zuckerberg to steal, I mean, create Facebook. He said to himself, if we don't have the power and freedom to rank our leaders by sex appeal, can we really call this a democracy? And he answered himself with a resounding, righteous, historically revisionist, self-aggrandizing, no. History will not forget the efforts of the Defense Policy Board Advisory Committee, how avidly Richard Pearl and his chums wished for an excuse to invade Iraq, and how delighted they were the day that wish was granted when the massacre of thousands on 9-11 provided what, with just a little lying, could be twisted into that excuse. But 
of more gripping historical urgency is the imperative to remember the team of ineffectual non-blowers of absent whistles in the cabinet who sat by and allowed Bush and Cheney to lie us into war. For we must be vigilant not to ignore the obvious question of who was the hottest member of the negligent W. Bush cabinet. The answer being Colin Powell, of course. With that adorably contrived presentation to the U.N. Security Council and the cute little vial of fake anthrax and those killer eyelashes. Sorry, Paul Wolfowitz. You ain't it, Miss Thing. Who was hotter in prison garb, Scooter Libby or Judith Miller? Who was a hotter espionage informant, Valerie Plame or Ahmed Chalabi? Trick question. It was Rafid Ahmed Alwan al Janabi alias Curveball, the former Iraqi citizen who gave false information to the Defense Intelligence Agency and had great hair. To try to exclude the public from these discussions would be to slam the door, the gates of power, and, and, and draw a curtain of opacity in front of the entire political drama. Without transparency, there is no democracy. Just a spectacle whose only audience is the players themselves. Is the relative sexual desirability of journalists, politicians, lobbyists, diplomats, and spies on the international stage a matter only to be discussed among the privileged few? There are those among the hyper-oligarch-supporting intellectuals who would denigrate this activity as the hoi polloi rehashing the past. Don't let them dissuade you. Knowledge of history is power. And one can always find value in applying it to the present moment. It's a matter of utmost urgency to decide not only whether the communards of old Paris were hot or not, but which were hotter, those early communards, or the more recent ones now being massacred by Turkey in northern Syria. Is it our business? I say let's make it our business. And while we're on the subject of genocide, which objects of attempted genocidal fascism are hotter? Rohingya, Yazidis, Kurds, Uyghurs, Palestinians? Jews, the queer and the trans, indigenous people everywhere. How about black people in the United States? They're totally hot. Look, I know it seems a shallow activity, kind of like voting for president, but it is your civic duty. This is your world, you people of the world. If you want it to be a democratic one, or at least one in which regular non-superprivileged people also have some say in the way it's run, you have to get in there and get your hands dirty. Or get your dirty hands on the levers of power like a snotty toddler spreading his germs all over everything. Uh, what I mean is, what kind of a world would it be if only oafish, boneheaded fascists could put in their two cents about who was the hotter oafish, boneheaded fascist, Trump or Boris Johnson? What kind of a world would it be if only creepy colostomy nozzles were allowed to have an opinion about the relative repulsiveness of Rush Limbaugh or Laura Ingram? What kind of a world would it be if only narcissistic, vapid billionaires could weigh in on how much hotter Elon Musk is than Mark Zuckerberg? And who has developed the hotter surveillance software? The better to police you with, my dears. Zuckerberg, with his social media spying, or Jeff Bezos, with his home-invasive automaton, Alexa? Siri, what do you think? Come on, people, weigh in. Don't let it be said that Zuckerberg weaseled control of the social media landscape for nothing. What's a current issue? Wealth inequality? America's economically punitive healthcare system? Or America's economically punitive criminal justice system? Pineapple on pizza? Or, hey, how about global warming? Hot or not? If you don't decide, the billionaires will decide for you. I mean... They probably will anyway, but we should at least try. It's like the lottery. You can't win if you don't play. 
And you can't be a good citizen of a charade if you don't play along. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. That was spectacular, and the fact that you got over your hiccups throughout the moment of truth was really good. I couldn't. I, I would have had to have stopped. I cannot. I have this whole paranoia that whenever I get hiccups, I'm going to be that person who has hiccups for the next 47 years. So I immediately drink like 24 hours of or 24 hours, 24 ounces of water while holding my breath to get rid of the hiccups. And my girlie's always yelling at me about it because it's a disgusting thing to watch. And I totally have that paranoia. So congratulations that you can control your hiccups, Jeff. Well, thank you, Chuck. That was, a spe- that was a spectacular moment of truth, by the way. Thank you. Oh, and on the uh, prison firefighter thing, you know, uh, they get paid very little. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> and when they're done with their firefighting service, even and when they're out of prison, when they're done, they are, like, banned from becoming professional firefighters. They, right. Even though they've had this experience, yeah, even though they've had the training, they've now learned how to be a firefighter. You're not allowed to be a firefighter once you've been in prison. Under, like, the worst <laughs> conditions, you know? I mean, it's like, it's not like they're, they're putting out a house fire. They're, like, in the middle of a world that's on fire. It just amazed me while I was watching these press conference and all the news coverage. You just don't hear anything about I read one article where they said that might might even be, like, a, a very significant amount of the firefighters are prisoners. So, oh, there's quite a significant amount. Yeah. You should be there at the press conference and ask that question, Chuck. Come on out. Uh, yeah. Have yourself a California weekend. I can't get press credentials for the Chicago Auto Show. Do you think I'm going to get press credentials for that? <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Until next week. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, all right. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Alex, you have the rest of the responses Ooh. to this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what is the Halloween costume that you are not getting in trouble over this year? What is the Halloween costume that you are not getting in trouble over this year? And the winner of this week's question from hell gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive loaded with 25 classic This Is Hell interviews from the 2000s. It's kind of an introduction to This Is Hell. Alex, please tell us the rest of this week's question from hell answers. All right, two responses left to uh, what costume are you not getting in trouble for this Halloween? Jeffy D says, sexy Wesley Willis. (laughs) And Jason F says, I'm putting on my Bernie shirt and telling people that I'm a Democrat. That's nice. My costume that I'm definitely not getting in trouble over this year for Halloween is I'm going to be going as a homeless person, so I'll be given the treat of advice that I don't need. So uh, let's see. The ones that I really liked. I like David T. saying that the Halloween costume that he's not getting in trouble over this year is going as Justin Trudeau in whiteface. I like David S. saying a peach formerly known as flesh, as in the Crayola crayon colors. Uh, Aaron D.'s answer that was a little bit more complicated, but I love the idea of Santa Claus emoluments. (laughs) Santa emoluments clause uh so let's see sorry alex i'm gonna go with justin trudeau in white face so david t you are the winner of this week's question from hell just send us a message via facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio where you left your response and uh, give us your mailing address and we will send you the flash drive loaded with the this is hell guide to the 21st century uh, all right, so Alex, did you decide on an interview yet for tomorrow's show? Yeah, or, oh, uh, for Friday's. Friday's yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Vincent Bugliosi. That's a oh, a, that, a yeah. long. Uh, it's like an old 1999, 2000. 
super old interview uh, that has been, you reference it every once in a while when you brought it up in the Jenny Brown interview. And I don't think I've ever listened to that one. So let's dig way, way, way back to Vincent Bugliosi. Yeah, I can't remember if that's the one where he talks about indicting Bush or it's an earlier one. I think it might be an earlier one than that where he talks about the what he thought was the weakness of the Roe v. Wade decision. He was he was somebody who was very, very pro-choice, uh, very for the woman, a woman's right to abortion. But he always thought that it was a weak standing, which exactly what Jenny Brown was telling us. So that's going to be on our Patreon podcast. And our Patreon podcast this week is happening live streaming Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. We want to thank all of our new subscribers on Patreon who now get access to our weekly bonus show only for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, who joined us on Patreon this week? Uh, big thanks to No Name. I can tell your I can tell your name because it has your address here, but uh, their listed name is No Name. So thank you, No Name. Yeah, all right. Uh, you too can subscribe to our bonus Patreon show by going to Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell, and if you do, we will send you uh, This Is Hell advertising stickers, and you get a discount on all of our stuff at our store when you go to ThisIsHell.com and you click on support. Anything else I need to mention? Oh yeah, Alex. Who's on next Monday's one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, streaming live at thisishell.com? We're talking to Jason Pine, a sociologist, Jason Pine, about his book, The Alchemy of Meth, A Decomposition. And you've sent that to me already, right? Yeah, yeah, you got it. And uh, who's on Tuesday's two-hour show beginning at 2 p.m. Chicago time, also streaming at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after at the same place? Uh, We're going to be talking on Tuesday at 2 to Intan Suwandi, who wrote the book Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism. And then right after that, we'll be hearing from Curtis White. He'll be back on the show to talk about his book, Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today. I'm excited about that one. Do we already know what's happening on next Wednesday's show, which, like Monday's show, is on for one hour and begins at 10 a.m. here in Chicago? Uh, still working on that one. Okay. So uh, I want to thank everybody who helped us out on this week's show. Thanks to Alex and Jonah for producing. Thanks to Jeff Dorch for doing the Moment of Truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for all of his help on Rotten History. Thanks to Luke O'Neill. Let me go back to some of our guests here. Uh, thanks to Luke O'Neill, who is a writer and musician and author of Welcome to Hell World Dispatches from American Dystopia. You can find his work at luke.substack.com. Thanks to Christine Scott Hayward, co-author of Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pretrial Detention Fuel Inequalities in the Criminal Justice System. You can follow Christine on Twitter at C. Scott Hayward. And thanks to our guest today, American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk, author of the Aurora Magazine article, Chileans Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. Anybody else I need to... Oh, this week's hangover cure is the Portuguese favorite... Francesinha? Francesinha? I guess? Maybe? Possibly? I don't know. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over everything we've introduced to you this week. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. Uh, sorry, my bad. Hold on, let me get the right one. I like this, though. That was nice. Was that Fred? The music? Uh, no, that's uh, something I found on a site. That, okay. Uh, let's not get into whether it's legal for me to be using that or not. <laughs> All right. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down 
And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.